Turning your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 28 this morning, we are continuing in our series in uh, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 28 and 29. One of the favorite hymns that Pastor Chuck Smith used to sing on a regular basis at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, if you had attended there, which I did for several years, was the song we sang this morning. Uh, I'm having a brain freeze and remembering what the name of that song was, but it was Come Thy Fount. Thank you, brother. Come Thy Fount. And in that uh, him was the phrase that we sang, prone to wander, Lord. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And I think that Pastor Chuck, um, of course, I don't know this, but I think the reason he sang that, and he loved that, that hymn so much, was that he saw within himself the propensity for what that song talks about, that he had within himself and with those that he ministered to that propensity to wander from the Lord. In the 46 years that I've been a Christian, I have seen that same (laughs) propensity in myself and sometimes actualized in ways that I wish I hadn't. And most likely for you this morning, you've seen that same potential to wander from the Lord and to leave the God you love perhaps for a period of time. If that's true, and I believe it is, I'm not asked for showing of hands here. No need for that because then every hand would go up. If that's true, then what should we do about it? What can we do about it? Well, I believe in the text that we have before us that Isaiah gives us some help. And so that's what I want to talk about. How can we not realize that potential that exists in us to wander from the things of God? I think that's an important subject, and so being that Isaiah speaks of it here, I thought I'd communicate that to you this morning. The context of Isaiah 28 and 29 is that Assyria, and we've seen this before if you've been with me in these these passages of Isaiah, Assyria, a foreign power, is pressing upon the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And a matter of fact, it would overwhelm the southern kingdom in 722 and come to the very gates of Jerusalem and threaten the southern kingdom that way. And what Isaiah does in these two chapters, he exhorts the people of both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom because they are doing what that song talks about. They are wandering As a matter of fact, the reason this is happening to them is they have wandered from the Lord and they have left 
the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he exhorts them to that end. Now, here's my thesis for this morning. Nestled within these two chapters are three verses that are picked up by the writers of the New Testament and placed in the New Testament. Hmm. Now, none of us are being threatened by Assyria this morning. That's 700 years before the birth of Christ. That's not an issue. Assyria is not an issue for us today. At least I hope it's not. But probably, just like our Hebrew friends of that day, you have seen the potentiality in yourself to do the very things that they were doing, which was to wander from the Lord. Well, if that's true, and it is, (laughs) then perhaps this word would speak to you this morning. So we're not going to spend an inordinate amount of time in 28 and 29 because we have seen this, uh, this particular message given earlier, and here he just reiterates, but we're going to spend most of our time looking at how Paul, the writer of one New Testament book, and Jesus uses these two passages to speak to that condition so that we don't wander and leave the Lord we love. Okay, first um, verse that we'll look at is in 2811, but before we do, why don't we pray? Lord, we have before you your word. And many times our, uh, our minds and our condition blind us from the truth of your word. So remove that blinder this morning. We come to you in faith asking you to speak to us from your word and may that happen. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, first bit of help we receive from Isaiah is found in chapter 28, verse 11. Indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. First thing I see from this passage is we need to listen and respond to the word of the Lord. We need to listen and respond to the word of the Lord. The context of Isaiah 28 is he's speaking to the northern kingdom primarily in this part, and he's saying to them, okay, you refuse to listen to my word. You're not listening to my word. Okay, guess what? I am going to send you a people who will speak to you in a foreign language. You won't understand them. He says, if you want to listen to my word, okay, I'm going to speak to you by these these people. And they're going to speak to you, and you won't understand a thing they're saying because it's a sign of my discipline and my judgment on you. You want to listen to my word? Okay, I'm going to send you a bunch of people, but you're not going to understand anything they say. That's the point he's making, okay? Paul, however, picks up this passage in this verse, and he applies it in 1 Corinthians 14. So let's turn there for a moment, 1 Corinthians 14, and see how this applies to us as he uses it in the New Testament. It's a Hebrew passage, but it does have application within the New Testament, and Paul picks it up. Let's read the context. 
1 Corinthians 14, 20, and I'll read a few verses around it so we can get what's happening here. Isaiah 14, 20. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. Here's our verse. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men and unbelievers enter, will they not say to you, you are mad? But if all prophesy, an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secret of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that certainly God is among you. Now, perhaps you're asking at this moment, how in heaven's name, Neil, are you going to apply this passage to what we're talking about? Well, that's a good question, and I hope I'm going to be able to do that this morning. Notice what he says. He's speaking uh, to the church at Corinth, and they're misusing this gift of tongues. And at first, it seems like he contradicts himself because he says tongues are a sign for those uh, who those are a sign who believe, but to unbelievers. So sign is a sign to unbelievers, but prophecy is a sign for believers. Now, how does that work? Well, the way we understand this phrase is looking at the word sign. It's a sign. So it's a sign, it's a negative sign to unbelievers. Because they come in, everybody's speaking in tongues, they don't understand it, and they're saying, what, you're all nuts. They don't receive anything because there's nothing that they can learn from the uninterpreted tongues. So it's a sign of their unbelief. However, it's a sign, prophecy is a sign to believers. That's the word spoken. It's a sign, and what does it do? Because even if believers or even unbelievers come in and the word of God is spoken, they can hear it and apply it. So as tongues was assigned to the, to the northern kingdom, a sign of his judgment, so it is also today. When everybody is speaking in tongues, there's nothing to be gained from it. And the unbelievers, you say, you're, you're all, you're all you guys are nuts if you're all speaking in tongues. But prophecy, the word of God spoken, can be listened to and applied. The point that Paul is making here is the centrality of the word of God, the spoken word of God, that it can be both understood and applied and have an effect on our lives. The application... Just come to church, read your Bible. Yes, of course. Study your Bible. Read the Bible through. That's, of course, that's it. But I want to go just a little, bit, um, a little bit deeper with that application. 
In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus concludes his marvelous sermon in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 by telling a parable. And he tells the parable of two men. One man built his house on the sand. And when the storms of life came, his house was washed away. You're familiar with the parable. Another man builds his house on a rock. He builds a strong foundation on the rock. And when the storms of life come, his house is not washed away. The difference between the two men is the first man hears the word of God, but does not apply it. The second man builds his house upon the rock. He hears the word and does what with it? He applies it. He takes it in and lets it speak to his condition. James says in, I think it's the first chapter of James, do not be just a hearer of the word, but a doer. And so, the word of God, it would be like we're all speaking in tongues if we don't apply it because we just hear words, but it does no good just to hear words. It must be applied in our lives. The miraculous word of God, the word of God that stirs our heart is is a word that is both heard and applied. What are you talking about, Neil? Well, let's say the Word of God tells us that uh, we're to take the Word of God to all peoples. Does that tell us that? Both personally and missionary-wise. Throughout the whole world. How are we doing with that? How how are we doing? Is, Is that part of who we are? Is that part of who you are? Is that part of who I am? Are we taking the word of God and being a witness both in our community, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts? Is that part of our DNA? You see, the miraculous, the supernatural work of God, word of God is only when it's being used in our lives. Give another. Uh, How are we doing, how are you doing in your business? You, You who are businessmen. Perhaps you were students. Uh, How are you doing in being a witness and how you treat your customers and how you treat those that you run into on a daily basis? How am I doing? (laughs) How are you doing? Is the word of God working in that area? How are you handling your finances? Let me ask you. Well, now, Neil, you've gone from preaching to meddling. Now you're meddling, Neil. How you doing? Are you being a good steward of what God has given you? God has given you something. Are you using it? Not as I say. Who cares what I say? How are you using your word of God as it applies to the Bible? What does the Bible say to you about how you're using your finances? I'm just asking. I'm not meddling. How are you doing with your your wife, your husband? 
How's that going? You'll find instruction on, on how we are to deal with one another. It says the husbands should love his wife as Christ loved the church. Husbands, and speaking to me, I'm not just speaking to you. Husbands, how you doing? Mm, okay, I guess. <laughs> Wives, you're to respect your husband. How you doing? Wives, how you doing? The word of God comes alive and, and it's miraculous when it's listened to and responded to. Prone to wander. Prone to leave the Lord I love. Not when we're listening and responding to the word of the Lord. Okay, back to Isaiah. Verse 16, here we see we need to make Jesus our only rock for life. That's what I get from this passage. We're to make Jesus our only rock for life. Let me read the passage. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Here he's speaking to the southern kingdom. And they see what's happening to the northern kingdom with Assyria moving in on it. And they have begun to put their trust in pagan gods. How do I know that? Notice verse 15. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death. What, what they're saying is they've moved, that's, that's a phrase that goes with uh, worshiping foreign deities. They've moved their confidence from the living God to these foreign gods, and they're praying that these foreign gods will protect them from the Syrian invasion. But he says, wait a minute, wait a minute, I've built a cornerstone. Now, you know, when, if you're a builder, when you set a cornerstone, that sets the whole house, okay? And he said, I've set a rock there, and you're to put your faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Don't waste your time with these foreign deities. There is a stone that you can stand on that will protect you from the Assyrians. And indeed, we know from history that they came to the very gates of Jerusalem, but God scattered the Assyrian army. That's happened in history. That's the context of Isaiah chapter 28 when he speaks later in the chapter to, to the southern kingdom. Now, let's take a look at how Jesus uses that in Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, verse 33. Here, Jesus combines this verse with Psalm 118, but let's set the context as we look at it, beginning in verse 33. Isaiah 21, 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves 
to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir, come let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the vine growers? Well, they said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds from the proper seasons. Jesus said to them, here's our passage, did you not ever read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone This came about from the Lord and is marvelous in our eyes. Psalm 118. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people who produce the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but whoever it falls, it will be scatter him like dust. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees heard heard his parables. They understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Jesus uses this combined with 118 to speak to Israel. And what he's saying is, God has sent you prophets, one after another after another, and you killed some and you beat some others. But finally he's sending his son, Jesus Christ, and you're going to reject him you're going to reject him because you're not basing your life on the rock that God has established. And that would be true because just a few years later, uh, the rock fell on them and they were scattered throughout the then known world. The application. Well, we need to put our trust in Jesus. Jesus rather than any other kingdom, any other foreign god, or anything else. Well, yeah, that's that's true, but let me ask you a question. What do we mean when we say we're trusting in Jesus? We're putting our trust in Jesus. What do you mean? What do I mean? Well, let me ask you a few questions. What would happen to you, to me, if the long-standing secure job that we had for most of our life was suddenly taken away from us unfairly? What would happen to you? What would happen to me? What would happen if our mate, our loved one, that we loved and cared for for many, many years, suddenly died and was taken from us. What would we do? Or worse yet, if our mate suddenly proved unfaithful and ran away with someone else. Here's another one. What would happen to you or me if our children were suddenly taken from us? Unexpectedly, 
either through death or some other tragedy. What if the good health we've had all our lives was suddenly taken away from us and the doctor told us we had the big C or some other terrible thing. Suddenly, the health that we had all our life was gone. What would happen? What if our careful investments that we had been a good steward of all our lives through some financial whatever, was suddenly gone. Who were we trusting in? Well, there's two ways we can look at this. First, if we're, uh, if we're trusting in any of those things, if we're trusting in anything of that nature, that either what God has given us, what he has given us, or what we've accomplished for ourselves or some element or something else like that, if, we're, if that's where our trust is, then we're going to be devastated. We're going to be crushed. We're not going to know what to do with our life. However, if our rock, our cornerstone, is Jesus Christ, then we'll grieve. Well, yeah, that's what well, reasonable, amen? We'll be sad, disappointed, but not crushed, not broken, not scattered. We won't be prone to wander. So we'd have to ask our question, ourselves a question. What are we building our lives on? Is it on the rock? Is it on the rock? I certainly hope so. Years ago, I had a friend and a brother in the Lord. I haven't seen him lately. He uh, was being personally discipled by his pastor. And they were good friends. And it was the biggest church in San Clemente. This is down south. Biggest church in San Clemente many, many years ago. And... uh, when we would go, my wife and I would go over to dinner at their house. It was always about, well, Pastor Don said this, and Pastor Don said that, and Pastor... And it was good, because I could see my friend was being built up and encouraged by his pastor and his friend. However, one day, Pastor Don uh, picked up, left his wife and four kids, and ran away with one of the younger women in the church. And I saw what it began to do to my friend. And then about a year and a half to two years later, his wife uh, left him for another man and ran away. And um, his vibrant Christian life that he had was suddenly nowhere to be seen. Now, I'm not judging that's not... Who am I to judge? I can't see his heart. Um, that a church, that church, believe it or not, eventually collapsed and went out of business. And, and I'm not judging the elders or anybody. That's not my, my, my point is. But, however, 
I ran into Pastor Don's wife about 10 years later at a prayer meeting. At a prayer meeting. And she was as vibrant and alive as she was when I had seen her with her pastor, Don. And it was evident that she was still walking with Jesus. And I, can I tell you the reason why? Can I tell you? You already know it. Her rock was Jesus. Not her husband, not all the whatever she had, being the pastor of the biggest, the wife of a pastor of the biggest church. All that stuff was fluff. <laughs> her rock was Jesus. And she did not wander, and she did not leave the Lord she loved. Listening and responding to the word of God. Making Jesus her only rock. There's two things that are helpful. Third thing is found back in Isaiah. This time, verse 13 of chapter 29. Here Isaiah is speaking directly to the southern kingdom, to Jerusalem. Verse 1, if you notice, he says, Woe, O Ariel. Who's Ariel? That's a love term for Jerusalem. So he's speaking to Jerusalem. Look what he says. Verse 13. Then the Lord said, because this people draw near to me with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. The context of this particular verse found in chapter 29 is Jerusalem has all the accoutrements, so to speak, of uh, the worship of Yahweh. They had the temple. They had all the stuff, okay? It was all there. And uh, they were going through the stuff. They were doing the traditions. But guess what? Their hearts were far from the Lord. So they were doing the stuff that would be outwardly uh, supposed if you were a worshiper of Yahweh, but their hearts were far from the Lord. Notice it says, the honor me with their lip service, but their hearts are far from me. From this I get that they honored the Lord. We should honor the Lord with our hearts. We should honor the Lord with our hearts. How do I get that? Well, let's take a look at Matthew chapter 15. Back to Jesus. Eventually in the Bible, you always go back to Jesus. Matthew 15. Now, in order to set the context, let's look at verses 1 through 9. We should honor the Lord with our hearts. Then some of the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders so that you not wash their hands when they eat bread? Okay, good question. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And then he gives an example. For God said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father and mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother, and by this you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. 
you hypocrites, here's our verse, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. They do, they in vain do worship me, teaching the doctrines and the precepts of men. Jesus uses this passage to confront the leaders of Israel because although they were going through all the outward stuff of worshiping Yahweh, their hearts were far from, they weren't honoring the Lord with their heart. Their hearts were far from him. He calls them hypocrites and rightly so. You know what a hypocrite is? Hypocrite is who says and does something, but it's not really true of who he is. Now, I probably have to say that all of us have a little bit of hypocrisy in us, don't we? Come on, yeah. We do. Isn't that true? Yeah. A famous preacher up in Northern Mission Viejo has said, we should fake it till we make it. And I think that has some element of truth, okay? We should fake it till we make it. But you can't build your life on that. If your life is built on just going through the accoutrements of being a Bible-believing Christian, but your heart is... So you've got your Bible, you have your bumper sticker, you come to church. Uh, you, you know, you do all the things that are expected of you. You don't smoke, you don't drink, you don't go out with girls that do. All that stuff. But yet your heart is far from the Lord. Won't do it. Um, there was a chorus that we used to sing, and we've sung it before, but we haven't sung it lately, so just a word of encouragement to the worship leaders. <laughs> Here it is. Change my heart, O oh God, make it ever true. Change my heart, O oh God, make me more like you. You're the potter, I'm the clay. Mold me and make me, this is what I say. Change my heart, O oh God, make it ever true. Change my heart, O oh God, make it more like you. So the issue isn't just going through all the outward things that come with being in a Bible-believing evangelical Christian, but it's allowing God to change your heart. Well, how does that, how does that happen? Um, Paul Simon, uh, ele- elementary, uh, ele- uh, uh, a resound uh, philosopher from the group Simon uh, and Garfunkel, he had a song back in the 70s. It was called Slip Sliding Away. Slip Sliding Away. And his philosophy was, The closer you get to your destination, the closer you get to really who you want to be is more of the tendency to slip slide away. And I thought, I I listened to that song. I thought, oh, okay. You got a point there. But not necessarily true because there's something that you treasure, you'd want to happen. And what would keep you from doing that would be you'd slip slide away. 
Maybe. And he goes right along with what we're seeing in our passage, prone to wander, wander away, slip slide away. Um, I found a quote by Zach, uh, Rabbi Zacharias, and he says, you don't enter a life of profanity with impunity. It shapes your hungers and traps you. Let me read it again. You don't enter a life of profanity with impunity. It shapes and hung- your hungers and traps you. What he's saying is, let me, if I can interpret it, if you get into carnality, it will change you. It'll change your hungers. It'll change inside of you. That's true. Give yourself to a life of carnality, it'll begin to change you. If that's true, then guess what? Then the opposite is true, isn't it? If you give your life to things of God, that'll begin to shape you and change you. And um, Pastor Rob preached a sermon about five or six weeks ago, and he talked about how married couples, oftentimes when they live together for a long time, 50 or 60 years or 30 or 40 years, that oftentimes they begin to talk like each other and they have the same ideas. And that happens because you're spending so much time. And I thought, aha, there's the conclusion of my sermon. Thank you, Pastor Rob. (laughs) The conclusion of the sermon is, well, how does that happen? How does our heart change? Our heart changes as we're living a life with Jesus. Well, how do you do that? Well, Let's just pull it all together. When we hear the word of God and we're responding to it and we're seeing the miraculous work that it's doing around us, when Jesus is our only rock, that's that's all we're trusting in, not anything that he's done for us, not anything that we've done for ourselves, not any person, not any institution, but it's him and him only. When that is happening, slowly, He begins, by his spirit, to change our hearts. And that's what has to happen. Our heart has to become more like his heart. And the only way that happens is we spend time, more and more time, around those things that we've talked about this morning with Jesus. Okay. One of the reasons that I, I so looked up to Chuck Smith, and I still do, he's, with, he's in glory now, is although he would sing that song many times, prone to wander, prone to leave the Lord, I saw within him, as much as I knew of him, I never saw him wander theologically, okay? And I never saw him wander morally. He's straight as an arrow. You could depend on it. Those glaring blue eyes and that smile. (laughs) He never wandered theologically. Never wandered morally. Him and Kay were just right to the end. So, he had that propensity. And so do you. And so do I. The propensity within us to wander, to leave the Lord our God, we love. But we don't have to. Let's pray. Father, help us, dear Lord. We see in ourselves 
and those around us, the propensity to wander from the things of God. Paul even says that oftentimes the things that he wants to do, he doesn't do, and the things that he hates, he finds himself doing. Even he confesses that same potentiality in himself. And we stand with Paul this morning and say, that's true also for me. We know that won't change until the resurrection to deliver us from, even as Paul said, this body of death. We're waiting for that new body. Till then, help us walk close to you that our hearts might be changed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.